Trades with your host, John X. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the John of All Trades podcast, episode 356. I'm your host, John X. Thank you for joining us. Glad to have you back once again. And it feels good to be doing this intro again. It has been far too long since last I have engaged with a guest, and today's is a good one. Now, I'm not going to get into all the reasons why I was having trouble booking guests. Some were legitimate, some are annoying, some are my own part, but I will focus on this one. Real quick, right before we get to this week's guest, I am launching this Friday a brand new podcast with Kevin and Arthur from Discussion Combustion. It is called Happy Friday. That's right. Happy Friday. That's what people say to you on Friday. You know why? Because Friday is the best day of the week. Why not have a podcast dedicated to that where we talk about all the cool shit happening around Denver, interesting things in Colorado, fun stuff we found on the internet, and playfully ball-busting each other about whatever inane arguments we can find, just having a good time, getting the right vibe for Friday, kicking your weekend off right. That's what this is all about. I'm thrilled to do it. Follow us on social. It's Happy Friday Den, and we're under the Mile High Life Network. Mile High Life is an awesome new podcast network with a bunch of fantastic shows. Molly Smith's Did That Age Well is there. J.D. Lopez's Left Hand Right Brain is there. Let's Get Drunk and Talk About Your Wedding is there. Jeff Morton's Gen X show, of which I've been a guest, is on there. And now, happy Friday. It's going to be a great show. Cannot wait to premiere it for you this Friday, September 23rd. We're going to be going every week after that, too. So look forward to that. I'm super stoked, and I've been working in the background on that for a while. We're ready to go now, finally. But that's not why we're here. Episode 356 features David Roth, one of my absolute favorite writers. He's an editor at Defector.com, a website of which I recently resubscribed, and I get the most value of pretty much any subscription I have because I go to Defector all the time. And Roth writes brilliantly about baseball. He writes about former President Trump. He's so brilliantly incisive about everything that he covers, and his turns of phrase just fill me with pure joy. It's a real writerly kind of feeling. It's funny, he's sort of disarmingly modest about all of it. You'd think someone who is as good and skilled with the English language as he is could have a bit of an ego, but he's not like that at all. Case in point, this podcast, he and I basically spend, I would say, the first 40 minutes of it kind of just remembering some guys, which is one thing that Roth is really good at. Going back to Deadspin through Defector, you can remember some guys with David Roth. You know why? Because he pretty much remembers all the guys. And what a joy that is. We also spend some time talking about Defector. We talk about the internet of old, when people used to just go to a website and start scrolling and see like, hey, what's new on the main page? Defector still has that. Most of their traffic, the highest trafficked page on the website is still the homepage. That's amazing. It's no wonder the tagline of their site is Defector, the last good website. In many ways, that's true. I got him and we talked for like an hour and 10 minutes. I think it was longer than either of us intended, but we hit it off really well. The vibe is amazing. I laugh so much in this episode, so get ready for that. So, couple of things here before we get started. One, go on social media, like Happy Friday. Again, Happy Friday Den. 
That is Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And then make sure you listen to it Friday, September 23rd, and every Friday thereafter. Have yourself a happy Friday. But for now, let's make it a happy Wednesday with David Roth, editor at Defector.com. He is episode 356 of the John of All Trades podcast, and it starts right now. He lives like sort of mid coast, down easty type stuff, like much yeah. more country even than where she grew up. But it's nice. It's like I've been trying to like sort of sort this out about like what percentage of it is walking around in the woods and like eating food I like and being someplace beautiful. And then what percentage of it is that like these are the two weeks out of the year where I swap being online for like reading oh. books and sleeping enough. Sure. And, like, so it definitely, like, makes sense that I would come back being like, wow, that's great. If I lived there, I would be happy. But I think it's, you know, anywhere you go on vacation, it's like yeah. you spend enough time there, you eat, like, a couple of really good lunches, and you're like, I think I should live in Charleston, South Carolina. <laughs> totally. And, like, that's probably wrong. But, yeah. like, it's probably just you had a good burger. But I always, like, came back feeling that way. Yeah, it, it's like um, I love going to Portland, Oregon, so, like, the other Portland. Mm-hmm. And uh, Portland is, I mean, it's got its troubles. Like, if you go downtown and into Chinatown, you know, yeah. you've got homeless encampments and, you know, you you see, like, dirty needles everywhere. And But, like, you go to other parts of Portland, you go, God, I love it here. Like, this is just phenomenal. And you go, well, all I've been doing is day drinking. And, yeah. like, <laughs> right. That's how I feel even about going to Los Angeles. It's the same. I mean, obviously, you know that, like, if you're there, you see the trouble more than when you're on vacation. Right. But the real thing is I've never woken up, not since I was in college anyway, like, I've never woken up in the Pacific time zone and felt stressed out. I've always been, in one way or another, like, on a leisure, you know, sort yeah. of kick there. And so even when I went there with Deadspin, we had to do, like, video stuff or whatever. But that was, like, easy to a certain extent. Like, I didn't have to get up and, like, hit a deadline there. Right. Is that so, when you were doing, like, Let's Remember Some Guys? Sort of. It was the same team. We did one. Uh, this is the same group of people, but this was before the Super Bowl, the year that the Rams lost to the Patriots, and like it was that brutal game. Oh yeah. Uh, so this would be 2018, maybe. Right. So we went out there and talked to a guy that had a barber shop that was like a dedicated museum of L.A. Rams memorabilia. He had been like a huge enough L.A. Rams fan. It was in Orange County, and like I think yeah. I want to say the town was called like. Westchester that's probably wrong whatever it was it was just you know like one of those towns in outer LA where it's like sort of strip malls with like shockingly good Vietnamese food in them but otherwise it's just (laughs) eight lane roads as far as the eye can see right and it was quite the guy was really nice we had a good talk and everything like that but it was also like that kind of end of the road ish sort of experience with the old ownership where we just had money in the travel budget and everybody was like it'd be fun to go to LA and try to do something the Remember Some Guys things were uh, about the most cost-effective video content you could make because you can get a pack of, like, Don yeah, Russ yeah. cards for 25 cents. And then, yeah, you can just hand them to Lauren and watch me be a fucking idiot for an hour. <laughs> well, I like the wrestling ones you did with McQuaid. Yeah. Uh, because, like, I'm I'm a lifelong pro wrestling fan, and those cards that he had were, like, right around WrestleMania 4, most of them mm-hmm. were. And so I have those same cards. Oh, wow. And They're so I'm um, really badly done cards. Oh like, god, startlingly poor, <laughs> shockingly bad. And yeah, you, like you, even by the standards of like quality control that are associated with the '80s WWF, 
like the sort of the, what I remember about them was that all the photos were taken from like really far away. Yeah. Yeah, it, like it was it was an odd point of view. But I mean, you say that as someone who you got your start writing baseball cards, didn't you? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I guess it was sort of my start. It was like the first job that I had out of college that was like a proper job, you know. Right, right, right. I I'd had you know, I'd done a lot of temping stuff. I worked at uh, AOL at like the very end of the first dot com boom. Like that tells oh, wow. you exactly how old I am. <laughs> and and then like yeah, that was sort of the first one that I actually cared about at all. Mostly because I you know cared about collecting cards and stuff as as a kid. It was you know it was a different company then. That like Tops had sort of like I think if I had worked there five years earlier. They would have still been in this like big, like leaky facility, like under the BQE on Third Avenue in Brooklyn. <laughs> yeah. And when I went there, they were like, you know, at Lower Manhattan, like it was like, you know, sort of not a fancy office building, but like a normal Lower Manhattan office building where you work on like the 13th floor or something. Oh, okay. So it, it, this is David Roth, uh, an editor at Defector. And I've been reading you for a long time now. You are absolutely one of my favorite writers, both nice. in terms of sports and politics, because your ability to capture... I've, I've spent some time in like country club settings, and your ability to capture the mindset of the people in there, I think, is unparalleled. Thanks. Yeah, um, I, I, yeah, I absolutely adore it. Um, the point it's I was going to... one gonna... of those ones that I've just decided to take as a compliment, like people being like, you really seem to understand Donald Trump's brain. And there's a part of me that's like, what the fuck did you say to me? You're like, like get you, are you fuck serious? off. Yeah. But at the same time, it's like, I don't know, I have like one insight into him, and there's not really a whole lot uh, there to find. And that's no. sort of... Most of what you're saying, too, I appreciate that, but a lot of the country club stuff that you're describing is just me having like a very useless type of photographic memory for every shitty buffet I've ever encountered. Oh God. Yes. You so, know, so it's like I any used... like raw bar type scenario. That's like <laughs> where things aren't being kept cold enough. Like that is just seared into my consciousness. Dude, totally. I've spent so much time in hotel ballrooms where yeah. they bring out exactly. those big chafing dishes and you're eating these like underwhelming mashed potatoes and you're, you're going like, Oh fuck my life. Yeah. Like, right. Like this is like, well, at least I'll be really, really full. For the next two days. But yeah, it's it's not (laughs) like in an unpleasant way. Yeah. Like you just kind of like, well, it's time for myself to get, I'm going to get really shiny and I'm going to be a little grumpy. (laughs) And that's how it's going to be until like Wednesday of next week. And I'm going to be thirsty for no reason. Yes. Right. Everything just slammed with sodium. Yeah. That's, I mean, and then this is the part where I think it's like the, I guess the Trump years were sort of good for illuminating this, that there's like people that eat all of their meals there that like and not just him i mean that there's like a level of like you think that if you had unlimited funds that you would just go do all of the things that like maybe you like to do you know like i don't i'm assuming that part of you going to portland is like you like eating good pizza right like you like going to like get and i love powell's books yeah right and yet like it turns out that what happens if you have a hundred million dollars in new york city is you just go to like a really clubby restaurant where like roast chicken is like $55 and it's like a B minus. Yeah. And like, but like some guy fawns over you when you come in and you're like, Oh, that's Sandro. Like we love Sandro. We see him three days a week. And like, but it's like, it's not even good necessarily. It's just a way of sort of like signaling to yourself that you have the privilege that is so important to you. And like, 
you, and, and you get foods that are like no longer considered fancy, like twice mm. baked potatoes. Yep. A lot um, of like sprigs of curly parsley in the monitors. Yeah, totally. Like, All right. <laughs> like a lemon wrapped in cheesecloth. That'll be great. I'll squeeze that over my swordfish. Totally. And like, you, I mean, Trump is sort of frozen in time in a lot of ways where yeah. you, you'll drop references to people like Connie Selica, you know, who, <laughs> who, who like hasn't been relevant in forever or like Sean Southwick, you know, who was like married yep. to Larry King. And like these these weird sort of like vaguely sort of blandly good looking women that that passed through Trump's like, orbit, yeah, right of the like late George H W Bush early Bill Clinton totally. years, yeah. I think that's like it's not a new observation with me that like people sort of freeze in time at the moment when they become famous, you know. And so like oh, there's sure. this sense where like Justin Bieber is going to be 15 years old for the rest of his life. Like that's a tough one. You know, but with Trump, it was he was a little bit older. But also, I think the thing that's like weirder about that, like, yeah, he's obviously still like pushing the same shit that he was like trying to get across in the New York. I should ask now. I'm allowed to curse, right? I've already (laughs) done it five times. (laughs) Don't worry about it. Yeah, you're all good. Good. Uh, But like all the stuff that he was like sort of trying to get across, like getting himself on the cover of the New York Post when I was I mean, that's how I came to know him when I was like 10 years old and stuff like going to. Totally. Delhi near where I lived. And it was like they had a display of the post. He was on the cover every day, mm-hmm. you know, usually with some acrimonious divorce related headline. Yeah, like Marla Maples or whoever. Right. And so in a way, he was like the most famous person in the world. And then in another sense, I was like, what does this guy do? <laughs> right. You know, like it's not nearly as cool as like Dwight Gooden, like who was like on the other, you know, cover totally. of the post. <laughs> I was like, why don't you just turn that upside down? Like, one of these guys can throw 100 miles an hour, and the other guy is just, like, some bald Broadway gossip weirdo uh, <laughs> who's, like, been divorcing his wife for a year. Yeah, who, who's, like, famous for being well-known. Right. And, and I think that, like, that—I think the thing that's weirdest about him is that, like, he does feel like he's still kind of, like, stuck in that, like, the world of 1987. So it is, like— In some ways, I mean, I don't think most of what he believes and what he does, I think, can be, like, chalked up to the fact that he watches the TV shows he watches. But a lot of it, too, you know, you hear the, like, talking about, like, New York is a hellhole. We got to bring it back. We got to bring back the cops. That was, like, it wasn't true, true in the 80s, but it was, like, truer than it is now. Right, Like, it really was a much more dangerous place. And he, you know, as with everything else, like, he sees it through the windows of a limo, and that's, you know, and through television and through tabloids. And, you know, that it's funny to see that, that like that has become just through his sheer will to repeat stuff to a certain extent that's become like accepted as true by people who have nothing to do with this city and no real like dog in that fight one way or the other. But it's the same obsessions he's had his whole life. Yeah. Yeah. They they have not changed. I should say that I also say this as someone who like still gets mad about the Mets in exactly the same way I did when I was eight. So it's like, it's a little bit of a glass house for me, but it's, you know, it's true for everybody. Dude, yeah, we all live in glass houses to whatever extent we're willing to recognize that. But you brought up the Mets, you brought up Dwight Gooden. And, you know, I was thinking about relating this back to baseball cards for my, I think it was when I was eight. So that was 1989. My parents bought me the complete like tops 1989 set. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, it comes in that giant, like, cardboard. Like, it's like a yeah. narrow shoebox, right? That was a huge set, too. Was, they were just, at that point, making... It was, like, probably a 700-card set. It was gigantic. But my first favorite team, because my parents grew up in Chicago, and the... God, the poor Rockies didn't 
come to Colorado until 1993, yeah. my first favorite team was the 1989 Cubs. And, I mean, that team, Greg Maddox, uh, Mike Bilecki had an unbelievable year that year. Yeah. But And Mark Grace and Will Clark were just trading in the NLCS that year, both hitting over 600, I think. And uh, that was my first favorite team. And that, like, that in my brain is still the apotheosis of teams that I love. Yeah. Um, do you have a first favorite team? Is there one you can point to? Yeah, I mean, it was 86 Mets. Oh, well, really Jesus. Like, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I was very lucky like in that sense because I was eight years old when that happened. Okay. And I think there's something about – you know, it's weird. My nephew is 10, and, like – I think everybody's just kind of accepted that he doesn't give a shit about the Mets. Like he lives in Queens, like with my, you know, sister's family is probably a mile from city field, you know, like you could walk it in less than, a, you know, like with probably 30 minutes. Like oh, just down Jesus. Roosevelt. It's awesome. Yeah. It's nice. And like, he likes going to games, but he likes going to games to like eat ice cream and hang out with his friends and like run in circles, you know, like they don't, but for me, I think, I guess maybe because I was like playing baseball and, getting more out of it than I think he was getting playing, you know, where he was playing. It was that combination of like, I didn't quite know that I wasn't going to make the majors yet when I was eight, but I think I was like maybe starting to suspect that Mm -hmm. that wasn't going to happen for me. The team itself was like so swaggy and good. And it was, you know, I didn't have, I think that's, you know, part of like, I think where these impressions get made when you're a kid is that there's nothing really else crowding uh, your consciousness when you're eight years old. Like, I mean, I had, like, all the, you know, sort of anxieties and other stuff that would shape me through the rest of my life. I just didn't, like, have anything to worry about yet. I was eight. Everything was taken care of. Like, I got on a bike and went someplace, or my parents put me in a car and drove me someplace, and then I got out. I didn't pay for anything. Yeah. I wasn't, I was not yet, like, sort of, (laughs) like, confused by, like, horniness or self-doubt or any of the things that would like shape a person later in life oh yeah Uh, horniness will fuck you up man like i mean you never recover from it like it was definitely (laughs) one of those things too where to get back into like baseball like so it's like that team i cared about them a lot and then like i did sort of like i didn't stop caring about it but the team was very bad uh in the early 90s oh yeah also like i just had other stuff going on i was into i was better at basketball so i cared more about basketball and i got into going to new jersey nets games and i was obsessed with them you know probably in something like the same way who who, what 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 era was that was that Derek coleman and like yep Derek coleman kenny anderson kenny anderson uh and so those were but then even after like Petrovich died, that was kind of like another thing where I was like, I don't know that I really like am like up for this anymore. You know, right. like the team stayed kind of good and by the time, you know, when I graduated from college, the Nets were making the NBA finals. Like the Mets were in the World Series my senior year of college and then uh you know, like were pretty good yeah. for most of the, you know, 5-6 years, first years that I was living back here. And so I did, like, get back into it in that way just because, like, the teams were actually fun to watch and stuff. Yeah. But, yeah, I mean, nothing, I think, ever lands the way that it does when you're eight. And I think it's also, you know, maybe this is similar in your experience, too, that, I mean, the 86 Mets were, like, the absolute champion scumbags of their era. I mean, just for like, <laughs> they were, they were a great baseball team, but they were like, oh, there's a lot of guys with problems on that team. They partied too much. Yeah, like, cocaine it was a very, and all that, yeah. Yeah, and it was a. I think I knew at the time that they were like because things would happen. They kept getting in fights, you know, and so like that would always be that would like push Trump off the front of the tabloid. Briefly, it would be like, 
I remember that three Matts got in a fight with a bunch of off-duty cops at a bar called Cooters in Houston. <laughs> and, like, I've known that fact for, like, 35 years now. Like, that's Jeez. just, like, been something. It just lives there, yeah. it. The name of the bar, why? <laughs> like, I mean, some of it's a good name for a bar. But yeah. it was, like, I knew that they were dirtbags. And then, like, later on in life, you're just kind of like, oh, my God. Like, what were they doing? Like, and I know with Mark Grace, it's, yeah. he had a really good career. But he's, like, I think mostly famous at this point for being, like, the baseball player who could drink the most beers during the 1990s. Yeah, and, well, first of all, he has the most hits of anyone in the decade of 1990s, which is just yep. one of those quirky stats. Yeah. Um, but now, like, he's got, he's like a serial DUI guy. I know. Where, Even by Arizona uh, standards, everyone's <laughs> like, you're really good at this. Yeah. You gotta like, take it easy, though. <laughs> By Arizona standards. Well, that's like a, that's like the culture of that place. Oh, totally. Like, I feel like it's like the sort of thing. We were talking about this at work the other day that like Steve Keim, who's the GM of the Cardinals, got like a DUI that was basically one of those ones where like the breathalyzer is like flashing like skull and crossbones instead of a number. <laughs> like it was just not. And yet like whatever, he didn't even lose his job. Like he had to be like, oh, I made some mistakes. Like, you know, it's like no one even gives a shit on so down there, I don't think. Th- there's a there's a book written by I think it's the MLB.com uh beat writer Carrie Musket. She wrote a book called uh Banks to Sandberg to Grace, which is a great title for a book by the way. Yeah. And uh she interviews all these players and Mark Grace tells these great stories about Rick Sutcliffe and Don Zimmer. Sutcliffe one time is getting lit up in Cincinnati, so home run, it's probably Paul O'Neill or someone or Eric mm-hmm. Davis or whoever launches one and in Cincinnati fireworks go off so bang 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 on the next pitch uh Sutcliffe gives up a back-to-back homer and so Zimmer comes out and Sutcliffe before Zimmer even gets out there Sutcliffe goes you fat he calls him he goes you fat bald son of a bitch get back in the fucking dugout do you think I don't know what's happening out here I got it under control okay (laughs) just yelling at him just pissed off and (laughs) Don Zimmer goes Sut easy I know you got it I'm just trying to give the fireworks guy time to reload. <laughs> <laughs> and so you can see Grace on camera. He's like, I'm laughing my ass off and I cannot stop. And, like, and, and he's getting ready to pitch and Sutcliffe even laughs and he got the next guy out. So Zimmer knew exactly how to defuse him. That's incredible. <laughs> and I That's thought, a good baseball story right there. I feel like I remember so many stories like that from when I was a kid, like reading – like the um, baseball hall of shame and stuff like that. Like just like stories about Earl Weaver that like, maybe they were true, maybe they weren't, but that were just like perfect little comic uh, dialogue, whether like some, if a writer made it up, like it's honestly just as good to me. Oh, totally. Yeah. Like I, I don't give a shit at this point. Just give me good content. Um, (laughs) So when I was, um, yeah, when I was eight, so I was playing baseball and I was third baseman, and the Cubs that year traded for a guy named Luis Salazar. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think he came from the Padres, but he was number 11 and played third base. So I go, well, I, I guess since I'm playing third base, I'd need to be number 11, which is why I remember Luis Salazar so well. I, I don't think he had even a terribly remarkable career, but like, no, to your he point, when, when, when you were that age, for me, everything was the Chicago Cubs because they were on WGN every day, so you could see them. Yeah, I mean, I uh, saw a lot of the Cubs in that era, too, just because, like, it was free. Them and the Braves, not great mm-hmm. teams for the most part, but came with the cable package. Not not until – I remember – so listening to Harry Carey, he would get really ominous when he would start talking about John Smoltz. 
and because Smoltz was like their guy, he was it after mm-hmm. like Dale Murphy retired. Then after Smoltz came Glavin, and then Maddox showed up. David Justice was like this hot shit rookie, and then the Braves were everywhere. And the Rockies, when the Rockies came into existence, would go like three and thirty against the yeah. Braves. So I grew to hate them so much. I kind of so I had an interesting relationship with them in the sense my family would go to Hilton Head every summer. Uh, the famous time when one wants to go to Hilton Head when it's 101 degrees with 85% humidity every day. Lovely. And but that was, we would go there and that was, and then we'd watch the Braves. Like they were on uh, Superstation. And so I was there from like, just given how long my family went there, like starting with like the Dale Murphy, Bob Horner teams that were bad. And then through to the teams that you were talking about where they were like all the guys that would later go on to like become big stars, you know, in many cases, yeah. Hall of Famers. But, like, I remember watching Glavin just get lit up mm-hmm. as, like, a younger guy. Or, like, Ron Gant, like, playing second base and, like, getting sent <laughs> back down because he struck out all the time. Like, there was a lot of those dudes that would become, you know, like, big parts of the, I mean, the one championship team they had. But those, like, dominant teams. And it was, you know, it was strange because, like, I didn't really like them either. And then eventually, you know, once they got good, they were beating the Mets. So that sort of made it yeah. more unappealing. And yet, like, I had this soft spot for them because I remembered watching, like, Tom Glavin with a lot of pimples at the age of 20 giving up four <laughs> consecutive doubles. And I was like, oh, I felt bad for that guy. And now look at him. <laughs> like uh, like Rick Wild thing Vaughn in Major League Two. Like, uh, yeah. <laughs> he set a new uh, new record for most consecutive extra base hits. <laughs> Congratulations, Rick. Yep. <laughs> they had so many guys like that at that time. And most of them went on to have, like, decent big league careers, but they just... I guess they didn't have anywhere to put them. Like, you know, they were too good for AAA and not yet good enough to be in the majors. And so what you got there was just sort of like, whatever, like John Smoltz version 0.0, where it was kind of like same uniform, but everything else wasn't working. Oh, totally. So I got to pivot this into your writing a little bit. Otherwise, this would be a total dereliction of duty. But right. you've uh, you've written about the Rockies before, which I've I've always appreciated because fucking no one writes about the Rockies <laughs> <Thanks>. because <laughs> why would you, right? But in your case, like you you look at it with with a clarity that I think is sometimes lacking even from local sports writers, where you've got an ownership group because going to a Rockies game is a fun event no matter how shitty the team is. I've always wanted to go. It's supposed to be like the like basically the best live ballpark experience. Like people love Pittsburgh and people like going in San Diego. I think it's supposed to be really fun. But San, Di- I- San Diego's nice, but like it, 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 it feels almost pointless, right? Mm-hmm. Um, right. Cause- That's kind of the whole thing with the Padres. It's like everybody's so blissed out because it's seventy eight degrees all the time that the baseball is right. kind of incidental. <laughs> But like, yeah, I mean, I've I've been to Wrigley, I've been to Fenway, I've been to Petco, um, and they're all great parks. I, there's something about Coors Field, and I think it's the lack of humidity, honest to God, yep. that, that, that makes it so nice. So the team is always going to make money. And that would be fine if that was sort of the reason for the ownership acting the way it does. But the problem is you've got Dick and Charlie Monfort who think they actually know baseball, too. Right. It's um, the most dangerous type of bad owner to have. Yeah. And- it's also, I mean, I think for them, it's unique. They have, well, it's unique in some ways that like, because there's the type of bad owner that the Mets had with the Wilpons that the Angels have uh, with Artie Moreno, where it's a guy who thinks he knows baseball, is willing to spend money on it, but mm-hmm. also is like stubborn in a way that only a billionaire can be stubborn, where they're just <laughs> sort of like, we're going to keep fucking this chicken until it works. Like, I'm just going <laughs> to stay 
And so with Marino, that really is what it is. Like, I'm just going to sign the best offensive free agent available. And if I do that five or six times, like, we'll have a great lineup. And the answer to that is, like, you won't. You'll have, like, Anthony Rendon, and you'll still be paying Josh Hamilton somehow. And it's, like, just (laughs) not going to work. Yeah. Uh, The Rockies are interesting to me, and this has been the case. I've written, I think, their team essay for the Baseball Prospectus Annual. They're the only team I've done twice. They love to give me a bad team every year. Like I could tell you all the different teams that I've done and like, Oh no, I did the angels twice. Okay. That's right. I've done the Rockies once, but the Montforts are interesting to me because they run the team as like kind of a values driven sort of like organization. And yet the values are, are, I mean, they're evangelical Christians and like, so there's a lot of evangelical Christians in the organization and stuff, but there's not the sort of accountability that you would expect yeah. from that. Like it, this, or I mean, from anything. I mean, that they just sort of are quite happy, I think, to like be the weird way that they are, and to do whatever the owners feel is right from one moment to the next. But there's not like a philosophy there where like the Wilpons wanted to win a World Series doing Wilpon shit. Like Artie Moreno <laughs> wants to, or he did. You know, now he's exploring a sale, but like he wanted to make the sort of right decisions himself and get credit for it that made for a World Series champion. Whereas I think the Monforts are just like happy to have this nice ballpark to hang out at and all these like nice young men with beards playing for the team. And that's... <laughs> well, what's what's funny about it is you can email Dick Monfort and he will like be drunk. He'll be back. Oh, yeah. He'll be like drunk at night um, and like write angry emails back to you about like how wrong you are about yeah, your assessment of the team. I remember that story from a few years ago where he like wrote back and it was like it was full on like a drunk email, but it was like a five day story. Because I think initially he was like, I would never do that. And then the person like produced the email. Their emails, like, bro. Like, Okay, right. Well, look, whom among us hasn't said you'll never amount to anything to a stranger at <laughs> one ten a.m. in an email box? No, totally. I mean, uh, you know, that's that's rote bullshit at this point. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, So are you a, a big fan of the team? I, yeah, I try to be. Okay. It, like, they, they don't make it easy. No, um, because like they'll be good once a decade um, or like in 2007 and 2009, you know, that was really fun. Yeah. But, you know, they, they happened upon a really good group of guys at that point. What I was going to say was there's there's weird institutional rot within the Rockies, too, mm-hmm. where I think I commented like in the defector comments under your piece. I approached their PR department about doing a podcast series about the team where I talked to like, you know, I want to talk to the traveling secretary. I want to talk to the clubhouse attendant. I want to talk to someone who manages fucking supply chain. You know, like how do you keep hot dog buns like running through this stadium? Like the, that's sort of what this show was originally about where I, think that's I a ta- good idea. <laughs> Thank you. Um, I thought it was pretty good too, and it's like free publicity for the team. And all I got back from them was we can't, we can't, we can't. And I'm like, yep. why the fuck? Like, what is your problem here? But it's it's because there's this culture, this penny pinching culture, where it, it's almost like that that sign that says if you have time to lean, you have time to clean. Um, but yeah. it, it it's like that became sentient and is now running the Rockies. It's like the least generous and. Also, though, I think, like, one of the most unappealing ways to be, like, as an organization. The Mets had this, too, where it's, like, everything that they're doing, like, they're they're certainly happy to take your money. Every other element yeah. of it, though, is about telling you to fuck off and go away <laughs> and leave them alone. And yeah. I think with the Rockies, there's also this added element, because I remember reading, I know that, that Denver's had terrible 
newspaper stuff that they got one of the newspapers got Alden out of existence and the Denver Post I know is like I feel like they are a very well covered team given mostly I just think like Nick Groke is great and like the athletic oh, coverage over there has been really good and, he's phenomenal yes yeah but I think it was the athletic that had the stories about like during the uh the pandemic season that the team was basically like running beyond a skeleton crew they laid off all their scouts they like of which they didn't have very many anyway they've never had an analytics department or much of a baseball ops side and so it was like people that had like front office jobs were like going downstairs to do the team's laundry at night and stuff like that (laughs) like they were really running like the so there's this sense of like if you let john do a podcast about you then it's that it's like that Simpsons moment where like the front of Lenny's house falls off and he's just eating beans at the table and he says, Don't tell anyone how I live. But, like that's basically what you would have been like ripping the lid off the yeah. fact that the Rockies don't actually have and this is something I've in writing about them been fascinated by, that they like they don't have player development staffers. Like it's just it's not like they don't have enough or the ones they have are bad. Like the departments don't exist, right? You know, there were stories about them when they after uh, they finally got rid of the previous GM, and when the uh, the guy like Campbell was being the interim. I don't know if he is the GM now. It's uh, I think it's Bill Schmidt now. Oh Schmidt, that's what it is. Yeah, that and he was a guy that had like worked at GM or something like that. Like had no real <laughs> right. baseball experience, and. There were like teams were like, we're trying to trade for John Gray and none of us know who to call. Like we call this one number and the phone rings and rings. No one has Bill Schmidt's number. And so like they just couldn't make moves like it was like they were inaccessible to other baseball teams, which is like really unusual. Well, and so John Gray walks for nothing. Trevor Story right. walks for nothing. They signed Chris Bryant to this giant contract, and he immediately gets hurt in classic right. Rockies fashion, which is, by the way, someone uh, why I hate Brett Saberhagen so much, because he was so crafty in like getting the Rockies to sign him, get rehabbed, and then fucking leave. Yeah. <clears throat> which it, it is <laughs> a very, like, as a fan, nothing is more offensive than that. I mean, I think there's... for When it was at the, like, real bottom for the Mets, they did that with uh, with Jed Lowry, but the Mets' touch then was that they would also get the guy injured, misdiagnose their injury over the course of, like, six months, and then have to pay for the rehab. Right. And so at some point, I'm just like, I just felt bad for Jed Lowry because the Mets were like, yeah, he's got a lower body thing. Uh, now it's also a mid-body thing. Uh, we don't know what it is. Uh, we expect him back in five days or next year. And, like, that was just how they handled everything. <laughs> well, it, I mean, and apparently that's not uncommon. I had uh, one of my best friends, little brother, he was in the Diamondback system for a long time. He was a catching prospect, made it all the way up to AAA. Had, a like, some sort of, like, broken bone in his hand that they kept misdiagnosing. Yeah. And it ended up, like, derailing him um, almost entirely. Yeah, it happens a lot. I. It seems like it's bizarre that that still happens because I remember, yeah. like all the books that you sort of read if you read books about like seventies and eighties baseball, they like beyond missing stuff. Like this is a uh, I read Davy Johnson's book. I interviewed him for uh, a, a video thing at Deadspin a million years ago. Yeah, and he had so the year before he set the home run record for second baseman, which I think stood until like a few years ago. Mm. But he hit, like, 40 homers in the 70s. Wow. And it was like he had—it wasn't even a complicated thing. Like, he basically was forced to play an entire season by the Braves with a dislocated shoulder. Like, something that, like, theoretically could have been, like, popped back in. 
but it was just like at, they were just it wasn't a priority like they were like there's nothing in the x-rays like nothing's broken sorry like stop being a bitch get out there and do your thing and like that's you yeah. know the idea of like a big league team missing on stuff like that like over and over again i mean it still happens the mets still don't put guys on the il when they get hurt but the rockies are, are a team apart to me i absolutely oh, God. agree with that so yeah it it, it's a fascinating team to root for, but also intensely frustrating. Yeah. Um, I, I want to transition into talking about defectors specifically, but before we do that, we'd be remiss if uh, I didn't have you remember some Rockies. Who are some oh, Rockies <laughs> that you I remember? Never ask. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, all right, where where should I start? What kind of what kind of Rockies okay. do you want to talk about? So, Early uh, days. Uh, I'll kick this off. Um, right. Where uh, I think I sent you. It was a tweet. You responded to me on Twitter one time. And I, I sent you something about Aaron Cook. And yeah. you replied back to me. You go, I am here for any and all Aaron Cook content. Thank you. I remain. <laughs> and I thought I'm that... literally here. <laughs> like... what, what, a, what a beautiful way of saying that. Let's, um, let's go unconventional here. Uh, who are some Rockies pitchers that, uh, that immediately stand out to you? Any era? I remember uh, the very brief period where Ubaldo Jimenez was incredibly good. I remember that very fondly because he mm. was... But the guys that I remember better, I think, like probably are like the '90s ones, because there was a period of time, Rockies and Marlins both, where because they were new, they were like kind of the hotness on the playground. Like everybody was like, "Yo, do you see that new David Need baseball card?" Like <laughs> number one draft pick, <laughs> number one draft pick, and it was like so. That's kind of what it was. You're like, like he gets to play in a vest and for the team with purple in their uniform. Like how could yeah. he possibly miss? And there were. So of that era, there were—I mean, I don't think I ever really saw those Rockies teams. Sure, I, I did see a Mets Rockies game at Shea Stadium. I remember this because my parents, who don't throw anything out, had we bought the scorecard for that game, and my dad and I kept score, and it's still in the downstairs bathroom at the house that I grew up in. And so whenever I'm home for, like, Thanksgiving, I look for it. It's got Lance Johnson on the cover. The headline Sweet. is Getting to Know One Dog. And then I can look at the box score and see it was like a, there was a bullpen meltdown where a Dennis Cook walked in, like, three runs mm. for the Rockies in that game. Future met Dennis Cook. Wow. Uh, and it, But I can, like, see all the guys. Like Quentin, um, did Quentin McCracken play for them? Quentin Billy. McCracken, yeah, center Quentin field. Quentin McCracken was in that game. So – of the Rockies pitchers, though, the ones I remember, I mean, Aaron Cook, for sure, was one of those guys that, this was like, it, there'd be these periods where they would act like they had figured out how to make pitching work in Colorado. And, like, the first yeah. idea was just sign other teams good pitchers, and then they realized, like, Denny Nagel's curveball doesn't move up there. Like, Mike Hampton, oh, God. much as he loves the uh, public schools in Denver, uh, did not get the, you know, movement that he was used to. And, like, Cook was one of those guys where, like, he didn't strike anyone out. He kind of, I guess, was like a soft contact guy, like got people to hit the ball on the ground. Yeah, or he had a he had a sinker. Like it was right. it was it was a good sinker. So you'd get like a lot of like ones right in like a Baltimore chop kind of deal. Yep, and that was basically the philosophy that I think they hit upon because it was like, well, at least he's not giving up homers. Totally. Like, and so I, Armando Reynoso is another guy that was a Rocky that then became a Met. Seemed like a similar sort of thing where like he was good. The opposite of electric stuff. Like Jimenez struck guys out. He was cool. But all the other guys that they had, including the ones that were like sort of their aces, like Jeff Francis never struck anyone out. Jason Jennings was like a guy that would give up more than a hit an inning. Jason it Jennings with like, his huge child birthing hips. Yes. <laughs> and also, as I recall, a very good hitter. But he oh, was dude, one of those yeah, guys. He, he raked. 
but kind of like an unathletic body in the way that only baseball players can have where you're kind of just like like a weird looking tall guy who like maybe doesn't work out it's but like also gets to play for 10 years well like and so dane cook uh back before he was totally insufferable had a joke about like you would never say he's fat but he is like shapes yes like <laughs> right that's where where you go like <laughs> Jason Jennings is built weird and like Jeff Francis looks like he's twelve, but like he had that year where he would win like seventeen games and yep. his ERA would be like four eleven, but but you're like you know that's pretty good like for yeah. for a Rockies pitcher he would win and like he would keep you in games and so like Jeff Francis probably one of my all time favorite Rockies, um not great stuff and like no. was, was Canadian and like just. He, he was, like, an unusual cat, but such a likable character. Yeah, and I think there's something about that type of pitcher, too, that, like, it's cool to watch, you know, uh, Jacob deGrom or, like, this sort of, like, latter-day Justin Verlander. Like, pitchers that are great and also are just, like, absolutely overpowering the hitters that they're facing. Like, yeah, not just with the stuff, but just in terms of, like, they're so much better that the hitters are always on their, their back foot, you know, that they're, like, not able to get comfortable Whereas an Aaron Cook, Jeff Francis sort of experience where a guy is winning despite the fact that hitters seem comfortable are like putting good swings on the ball. They're just not able to do with it what they want. Like, right. that's kind of cool, too. I mean, that was like when the Mets had uh, Chris Young, who I believe not the uh, did Chris Young pitch for the Rockies, too? No, I he did. The no, tall, he pit- big, tall guy. He pitched for San Diego. Okay, that they had him, and it was the same sort of deal. He was one other one of those like super tall guys with like you know high eighties fastball stuff. <laughs> like just, I think it's really hard to throw effectively when your body is that big. That it's like no one but Randy Johnson's ever really like yeah. mastered it at that sort of height. But it was like the, what they were betting on was basically like this guy gets a lot of infield pop ups. We have no idea why. Like <laughs> right. no one knows why. But, like, it's pretty good. Like, you know, like, that's a good way to make outs. And, like, that's any of the stuff about baseball that's still unknown is, like, cool to me. Like, that's Uh, the stuff that I like, right? It's why I like writing about pitching more now. Um, And I was not, I mean, I had pitched a little bit in Little League and stuff. It was not something that I have, like, any real experience with. I just am fascinated by how hard it is. And then also, like, the extent to which it is, like, both quantified and totally mystical like just you know a mystery i i will give you a perfect example of this a game that stands out in my head it was a josh fogg masterpiece man i have i have a josh fogg story but tell perfect okay so i'm watching this rockies game josh fogg throws a two hitter over 86 pitches a complete game shutout just a fucking maddox good for him And, and and the game lasts an hour and 58 minutes and you're going, what the fuck happened? Like, and, yeah. and and what a blessing for everyone who like is at the ballpark having to do their job that day. They're like, I'm gonna go home early. Thanks, Josh. Yeah, Fogg. Like, seriously. Like, <laughs> just like I'm gonna be out of here like in time to just eat dinner at a normal time. This yeah, is great. Like, jo- Josh Fogg was clearly on retainer, not working by the hour. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> and just like, let's get the fuck out of here. Throws, yeah, like 86 pitches. Two hit shutout, one hour fifty eight minutes. I may have these numbers slightly wrong, but you, like you get I mean, the gist of that. Sounds it sounds like a Mark Burley game, and I'm going to assume that a totally. lot of that is like it's four strikeouts and a walk or something. You know, I mean, just yeah. like not <laughs> like nothing 
cool. Like he's just putting the ball where guys can hit it and then they're hitting it directly at people. <laughs> yeah, just ruthlessly efficient for whatever reason. And so you're right to that extent. Like how, how did Josh Fogg conjure this masterpiece? Whereas, you know, normally jo- a, a Josh Fogg season is like, you know, he's like eight and seven with like a yep. 470 ERA or something. It's yeah. the innings eating guy. Like, yeah. I, I guess it's in some ways it's, you know, that all of these guys including like a Josh Fogg type or like everyone that played baseball against Josh Fogg in high school has like dined out on that story. (laughs) They're like, he's the best baseball player that was ever born in that region where he grew up. (laughs) It's always the thing that blows me away when you see these teams that have like, like the, um, it's like a Harvard Wesley team that had like Max Fried, Jack Flaherty, and like some other guy that's in the majors right now pitching for it in high school where you're like, well, that seems improbable. Yeah. Like like three all-stars on the same team. Because, like, most of the way that it works is, like, a guy like that is, like, the best player that the part of Kentucky he grew up in will ever see. And that's just that. Well, so at my high school, I think it was three or four years after I graduated, my high school won the state championship. And on that team was Mark Melanson, mm-hmm. who, who has gone on to have a great, great career. Yeah, very good career. Um, and, but, yeah, he's by far and away the best baseball player to come out of my high school. And so, you know, everyone oh, yeah. just knows that. Oh, yeah, I don't think anybody that. from the high school that I went to has... There's people that were born in the town that I grew up in because there's a hospital there. I don't know that any of them went to RHS. Like Jason Hayward was born in Ridgewood, New Jersey, but uh, ah. grew up in Georgia and, you know, like is not – we can't claim him. It would be uh, unjust. <laughs> J- Jason Hayward for a time – because I'm a huge Cub fan, and the Cubs signed him to just the yes, worst contract this side of Alfonso Soriano. Yep. Um, I, I started referring to him as Jason Hayward grounds out to second. Yeah, it's he was such a frustrating. I think that he is another guy that probably had some injuries mismanaged and like so didn't have the career that he should have. Yeah, but also like nobody has ever looked more like a ball player and just put up like just some real Kevin Kiermeyer offensive numbers, despite the fact that he just looks like exactly what you want an <laughs> athlete to look like. So briefly on Josh Fogg, I yeah. uh, this is a good story of me getting owned by myself. Uh, Ah, Fantasy cell phone. Baseball. I love it. No, but no, by no, by me. Like I think if I'd done it, if I'd done this in any other way, it would have been better. Years ago, there's a fantasy draft. I wasn't going to be there for the draft, and I was like, I'm going to queue 300 guys, like because I know so much, and I'm gonna like I want everybody just so, and so I don't want to have like come back and like find my team and it's got guys on it that I don't want. Yeah. So. At this point, I was, you know, you start from the top, and then I was, like, there were guys from the bottom where I was, like, in terms of, like, wanting to have, like, Fog as, like, a sort of a scratch-and-win, like, last-round draft pick pitcher type. This was, like, real analog Yahoo or ESPN fantasy yeah. days. Yeah, yeah. Where you couldn't drag somebody. You had to, like, click the little arrow to move them up or down. And so I would start by just put a guy at the top and then move him down until I saw where I wanted them to go. Somehow I had Josh Fogg. I did not move him down nearly enough. And I don't know if it was that it didn't save right or that I just got tired of clicking this fucking arrow a thousand <laughs> times. Whatever yeah. it was, I made Josh Fogg the seventh pick of a fantasy baseball draft in like a 10-team league. <laughs> and people, I wasn't there for the draft, and I didn't really know that many guys in the league. And so I remember like getting back from where I must have been on vacation or something like that, and people being like, what were you? What was going on there? Like, what happened? Because like your second through twenty ninth round picks all made a lot of sense, but everybody was like really mad that you took Josh Fogg directly before someone selected like Derek Jeter. 
and it was i had no answer for it i like because like the part of it where i was just sort of like well i meant to move him down to number 207 is like that's actually more embarrassing than selecting him for like first that's amazing yeah not my best work that's phenomenal though um and i i'll um, never forgive him for that either it's like kip wells i've forgotten about but like josh fogg who i think of is basically the same guy like totally yeah, I mean, they might as well be the same guy. I mean, there, there's like there's a zillion pitchers like that. I mean, like the Rockies bullpen. I, I, I don't know about you, but my relationship with bullpens is always very fraught. Like the, those yeah. are some of the most frustrating guys that that you will encounter. And the early days, you know, the Rockies had guys like Bruce Ruffin who used to throw just this terrible slider, yeah. um, or like um, Darren Holmes who threw this hanging curveball just almost exclusively, and he was their yeah. closer. Yeah. Uh, and you're like, God damn it, Darren Holmes is coming in. Or like Raphael Betancourt, who's a great pitcher, but would take forever to throw the ball. Yeah. Um, you know, everyone around here started referring to him as twitchy. Um, There's just, so many ways for a relief pitcher to drive you insane. It's another one of those things where it's like you can say that it's another way to like appreciate what's unique about baseball or whatever. And like it is. It is not the most endearing of those ways. Like it is no. just it sucks. <laughs> like and so. And also, I think because there's so much, like, variability built into all of that, that it's, like, you can get, like, Raphael Betancourt, good or bad, and he had a a good career, you could get a whole season where he's a turd. (laughs) And it's just, like, it's because the luck is, in you know, in his favor, and he doesn't pitch enough innings for it all to wash out. And so, yeah, you get these seasons. And, you know, you can get the good version of that, too. Like, I'm sure that there probably is, like, a season where, like, Bruce Ruffin pitched, like, a like Big a god yes guy but there was way many more where he didn't and you know those are the ones that you all got stuck with i i used to refer to latroy hawkins as the wheel of destiny it's yeah. like let's just spin the wheel of destiny we don't know what we're getting today and uh, he had a couple of seasons he had a, you know he played for so long yeah that there was like it wasn't a linear career either which was kind of fascinating that it was like he would bomb out of bullpens and then like be a, a viable closer for another team for like two years before bombing out again. Fernando Rodney's like the last guy that's really had <laughs> that sort of career. Where that's it's a like good one. Yeah. 20 years, 10 of them are like roughly all-star quality, but they're distributed completely at random across <laughs> that 20 year span. Yeah, <laughs> that's exactly right. Yeah. Like Latroy Hawkins, just world beater with the twins. Yep. Goes to the Cubs, very hit or miss, and then just will like reemerge somewhere else. You're like, God, he's closing again? How is that possible? He had a great season with the Mets when he was like thirty nine. Yeah. And it was the sort of thing and like it wasn't the sort of the, it wasn't there on the screen. Like you'd watch it and be like, This guy knows a lot about pitching because like it, this is not like none of this stuff looks like stuff that should be getting hit that softly. And yet no. he did it. Totally. So transitioning to Defector, uh, I am my subscription just renewed, and so absolutely, it is the subscription I think I get the most value out of because I'm there a lot, and I'm I'm reading pretty much everything that goes up. But one thing I've always been curious about is Tom will allude to this when he sort of does the the state of the union or the state of the site when he when he talks about this. I'm unclear on how you all are like how much you have to publish or like if there's even a publishing requirement, like in terms of number of blogs and things like that, because I mean, Rado is writing like every day. Yeah. He, uh, he's just different. He's a different <laughs> type of dude. Yeah. Uh, he also though, because he is, we're all, you know, sort of scattered across the country. Um, and I think because Ray feels, and he has this day job where he's on the radio in the Bay area during the oh. afternoons and stuff. 
And so I think he feels like this element of guilt. I talk to him on the phone pretty regularly. It's it's awesome for me to get to work with Ray Ratto. Like totally. I have admired him as a you know for as long as I've known he was writing, and he's like whatever he's not listening so i can say this like he's a, a fucking wonderful man like he like puts on the, the grumpiness and he's very funny with it but he's just like a really a really good dude he's a ray and of sunshine like in real life he is i mean like you wouldn't i mean not really well like, no he does, but like it's just like it's funny when he does it like he'll call me he's taking his dog on a walk and he'll like be complaining about something the dog is doing be like what are you you little bastard what are you serious but like because the dog like lies down in a puddle or something but it's right. all very like endearing to me like it's, just, it's totally. like he's as gruff with his pet that he loves as he is with like you know jimmy garoppolo oh, and yeah. i admire that so he writes a lot we don't have like hard and fast rules we didn't at deadspin either i mean i think that a lot of what we're trying to do and this is kind of like the part of the job that I have found sometimes to be the source of anxiety, but broadly speaking, now that we're far enough into it, I think that is the thing that makes me happiest about being there is that we have a target, a number of posts that we try to go for in a day, mm-hmm. you know, and if we get more than that, we feel good. If we get a little bit less than that, we feel less good. If we get much less than that, then everybody, you know, like sort of gets a a nudge about it, but we're trying to sure. put, you know, 10 posts, nine posts on the site every day. And we should be able to do that. You know, most, we probably do it about half the time. We're usually around that. What we're trying to do, and this sounds good, but it's also a great way to drive yourself crazy. And you can see this with Ray sometimes where it's like, if he hasn't had a post up, he's like, somebody's got to put a post up. Is that like, because it's subscriber driven, you know, and we have, it's like a goodly number. It's in the tens of thousands of subscribers. Yeah. We are writing for them. Like if stuff breaks contain, you know, like there's, you get a few, a free few stories and stuff like that and a few free stories and stuff like that. And so, you know, if I write something that like gets outside of the normal circle, like people will be able to read it, you know, and that's good for us. And maybe we get their email address. Maybe they subscribe, maybe they don't, whatever, but we're not doing the ad driven thing that a lot of sites do where you're just trying to maximize traffic because you need 10,000 people to look at a post before you see a cent from your advertisers on right. it. Yeah. For us, we're trying to to give you stuff that you want. Like if you were a subscriber, like we want to make the site good in the way that you want it to be good. And like, we don't want to pander. Like we want yeah. to challenge people. And there's enough subscribers with enough different perspectives that like, I think there's still this pressure to have it be like an interesting site that's always changing and stuff like that. But that part of it, like of all the people that I have been beholden to and all the forces that have boned me out of jobs at various different places that I've been, the, you know, 40 odd thousand weirdos that subscribe to our website are like, those are the people that I trust the most. Sure. Like way more than, you know, the CEO of Vice or the, you know, VC or like equity backers of like SB Nation or any of that. Cause like right. those guys get bored. They don't care about reading. Like they don't care about what we're doing. You know, like they have a business model that's interesting to them and then like industry trends or just some fad blows up out of nowhere. And they're like, yeah, we're a video site now or like no one wants to read about sports anymore. Yeah. And like for us, it's just we're a a customer driven, like we're a cash business, you know, like that part of it is a relief. It's just also the sort of thing where it's different because there have been different times at different places where 
I haven't felt like writing or I haven't felt good or whatever. And there's a part of me, you know, when I was at Vice and I was like, whatever, like Shane doesn't fucking care. Who cares? Like, it's not <laughs> right. like, what is that? His problem? You know, so you, you play for the people that you're working with and you do your best for them. But in this case, like, I really do care that our writers are, our readers are like getting enough of my writing to be happy and getting enough yeah. of like everybody's work to feel like it's, it's worth it to them. Cause like, I like them, <laughs> you know, like I owe them a lot. <laughs> and so that's like, it's a different sort of pressure, but I think a, a salutary one, like I feel like it's helped me in a way and helped me like stay sort of interested in a way that I haven't. Like most jobs that I've had once I started getting staff jobs, it's like you're there for 18 months and then you're out. Yeah. And I remember when we hit the 18 month mark, I had this feeling like, like it was like a physical sort of sensation almost where like like a timing belt in a car that's needs yeah. to be replaced you know like i was just kind of like this is it like sooner or later something bad is going to happen to me and like it's not no one's going to fucking lay me off like that would i would have to do that <laughs> right. you know and so it's that part of it like just sort of knowing that we're there for the long haul that like the site is really working the subscriber base is growing like we're making enough money to live like Dude, I don't it, know. I've never felt grateful like that in any work-related way. It's it's fucking amazing. Um, I was I was interviewing Kyle Ryan about this, who used to write for the AV Club and yep. has a Substack called Band Name Bureau, and we were talking about that. And Defector, I think people look at it and they go, "How can we replicate that?" And I, you know, I asked him. I'm like, in the heyday of the AV Club, when it was you know Tasha Robinson and Nathan Rabin and. Josh Modell and all, like all those all those sort of guys you associate with the heyday of the AV club. He's like maybe, but the timing didn't work for it. Yeah. Whereas what you all have is just so unique because you know like I'm not interested in talking about what happened to Deadspin, but like in 2019 you all leave at the same time, but you all still like each other enough to where like you're 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 still together. Yeah. And that is just so rare to find. And uh, like, I'll, I'll tell you two things just about defector that I really like. One is Lauren does an amazing job with the newsletter. It is yeah. the least annoying newsletter I've ever gotten. And one that I look forward to actually reading. Cause there's cool shit in there. That's really heartening to hear you say that because that is like more or less exactly how we talked about it. Yeah. It was like, we don't want to do too much, but Lauren was very clear about this. Like she was just like, I want to make something that people are going to open and read and enjoy and you look know, forward like, to. Yes. Yeah. But I think a lot of places have newsletters because you're supposed to have them, and right. they that spamminess kind of like comes through in that way. Yeah, I that's mean, awesome. I will I will run that by her. Yeah, pl- yeah. Please tell her that because even like I get I get alerts from like the Denver Business Journal, and I'll get like their just sort of rundown every day, and I'm like, yeah, all right, and I'll glance at it, and if there's a story, I'll click on it. But like this is actually fun to read, and I look forward to yeah. it every afternoon. The other thing I'll say about I mean, you said you write for us, like your subscribers. This is the only comment section I fuck with. Like, yep. literally, I, I'll go down. It's been that way for a long time, too. It's really, like, very rare. <laughs> but I agree. Like, commenters the only one I'd read. Are, are actually funny and, like, have interesting insights. And, like, sometimes there was this one guy. It was under one of Drew's mailbags where he was talking about the fear of having a second kid and, like, worrying about the relationship with his first kid. And as a father of two, I gave him some advice. And he, like... You know, everyone has like these cutie poo names under the under the comments. Mine is just like my alias for this. Like it's just John X. His name in the mailbag was his real name. And under the comments, he's like, you know, Mike here. Thanks for the advice. That really helped. And so it's like it's real shit. Like it's people being funny and people like 
to use a wrestling term, getting their shit in, and it's usually great. But yeah. it's also like real, and you can connect with people down there and get actual advice and like feel like you're part of this community, which is just wholly unique anywhere on the internet. Yeah. I'm so proud of that too. That's awesome yeah. to hear because it's like, and I think you know, it started the Deadspin comment section really did work and it had that same sort of like a community of people that were trying to make each other laugh and we're trying to like sort of plus one you know jokes and stuff yeah. like that and yet like it didn't curdle really like there were people that you know that fell out of it or that yeah. you know that one way or another uh you know it didn't work for them anymore but it makes me happy that there is that element of it and i think also you know albert and chris both were commenters before they were writers. Oh, right. Back at the old site. And I think that there's still like an investment in that scene being, and it's not anything that we hit 100% of the time by any stretch. You know, like sometimes you write something and people hate it or they are, you know, mad about something else entirely and have an <laughs> argument about something that has nothing to do with your blog and the comments under it. Right. And that's like just the internet. But it's important to us that it be like good because like people are paying extra to be able to comment. And I think that like, that's what they want. Like, I think that there's having it be the sort of thing that you have to pay to get there, I think has kept the quality control up. I think that everyone that's that's true, there yeah. is pretty committed to it being good. I mean, a lot of the stuff that, that you were sort of getting at here is the stuff that we tried when we were trying to get money from rich people. Mm. You know, we all wanted to do a site together when we left. You know, none of us had other stuff lined up right away by any stretch. No, and it was it was quite the leap. Yeah, it was. A, and the timing was exceptionally poor as well. <laughs> right. uh, so that was there was also that. I mean, because it was like we were close to, to having a sort of a backer around the time that the pandemic hit. And then obviously that didn't work out. And I'm, it worked out much better for us doing it this way. But this yeah. was riskier. It was different. I mean, the sense of the site had been a site for so long. There was this like dedicated readership and we could point to stuff that other sites couldn't, which was that like people would go like the number one most visited like link in our like, you know, when you go back and look mm -hmm. at like what gets read over the course of a month, it was always the homepage and it still is the homepage for us. It's not like, you know, there's stories that that really hit, you know, like that if Drew does like the William Sonoma catalog or something like that, right. it's like, it's really, really big, you know, like it's like a tentpole movie release for a studio. Sure. But people would just enter the URL in the fucking browser and read down the page and they didn't read everything, but they would like scroll and look for new stuff. There was new stuff all day, you know, all day. That is not the way that people read the internet anymore. Not anymore. And, and it used to be, and I miss that yeah. internet, which is one of the reasons I love Defector so much. Like, I, yeah. I started a site like that way back in 2008. And yeah, you're right. I mean, it, it, our traffic came from the homepage because yeah. people would go there and be like, oh, what's new on here? Like, this is my stop on the internet. Like, let's just see what's there because I like this vibe, which is exactly yeah. what you're describing. And, it, you know, in the places where it worked, too. I mean, I think Gawker had that comment section that was I, I was not a part of that. And I didn't really read OG Gawker that much. Right. But The All was a site that I read and I wrote for. I mean, really, like, oh, yeah. wow. that and Can't Stop the Bleeding were, like, the two that I think really, like, got me into to writing, you know, that, like, let me do that stuff. And that was also, like, a really healthy comment section, a lot of it being, like, Gawker, commenter, sort of refugees and stuff. But that, I think people still like reading like that. It's just that there's not, there's fewer sites and then there is this other kind of like sort of siloed thing where you mentioned the AV club, like 
for me, the AV Club was like indispensable. I read it all the time. Yeah, I still do read a lot of those critics. I don't. You know, I don't read the AV Club that exists now. Really, it seems kind of uh, desiccated and sad in the way that a lot of the Geo stuff. Does. Yeah, it's it's a it's a bit like it's a bit of a hollowed out husk compared to what it right. used to be. But so much of it is like you know, if I see that float through my Twitter timeline, I'll click the link and I'll read it. And I'm always glad that I do it, but it's not all at the same place. And I do feel like the, that like AV club community. And then I think some of the, uh, the guys that did the dissolve, which was another sort of like movie site that I liked a little more considered a little bit longer, you know, sort of formy type stuff that I know that, you know, there's reasons why that stuff didn't like sort of last as a standalone thing, mostly just being that, you know, it's expensive to be alive and you don't necessarily make that much money writing on the internet. And at some point you got to go someplace that offers you health insurance. But (laughs) the, I would have loved to have seen more of that to see like a place like the AV club be able to like all of those people together, just be like, we know that there's this audience for our shit and we don't need to be sharing it. I mean, they had a great deal with the onion when they had it. And then it's just like, at some point somebody starts messing around with it and, you have to get paid right away. So it's like, that's how you wind up with a million different sub stacks and people working different places here and there. And it's tough. I think that I've never really understood how to square the fact that the demand for good things to read seems as high or higher than it's ever been. Yeah. And yet that market is, is sort of shrinking so much. And like so much of it is just sort of like, trapped on twitter and they're the ones that are sort of like generating revenue off of it and that sucks it's like you're getting the worst version of something yeah in the most unpleasant possible place <laughs> with exactly the opposite of the comment section dynamic that you described which people like but i mean on twitter it's like any you know you read the replies to any post that's big enough from an account that's big enough and it's just it's it's a sewer yeah. sucks so <laughs> you know like and i think that as hard as it can be to sort of like cultivate a community there it doesn't mean that people stopped wanting it it just means that like I, either the bosses decided it was too expensive or too hard to keep that sort of thing going or that you know again like some industry fad dictated that that wasn't right. the way to do it anymore yeah or some vc goon showed up and it's right. like why why isn't this turning a larger profit like let's figure out how to supercharge this revenue and it's like no what that that's not what this is designed to do right like it's what, and I think that this is the other thing that like, not to get too into like the the numbers part of like defector or whatever, but like you can make a profit. We make a decent profit yeah. annually. We've done it two years in a row, and like, and that's with hiring more people, have to pay more for health insurance, like you know, cost of living adjustments and stuff like that. Yeah, you can still make a decent profit in this, more or less in perpetuity if you keep the stuff good. You just are not going to make like the fucking hockey stick Uber returns <laughs> right. that these guys want. And that's just the nature of this business. Like if you expect to make the sort of returns that you might make on like a Facebook investment on something that people are reading and that <laughs> like is making money off their subscriptions and advertising, then you are an idiot. Yeah. If you can accept making less than that, you absolutely can. It absolutely can be done. It's like, we're idiots and we can do it. So like it, that idea to me is like, it's both heartening and, and frustrating in the extreme to see all these places, you know, laying people off and, and pivoting and pivoting and pivoting to no obvious end when part of it is just like, 
adjust your expectations and then work hard to like get the stuff right that you can control like I, I mean essentially what you're describing is I, you guys I, you and drew one time I think it was during a name of the year bracket where uh, I had to I had to stop my car because I was laughing so hard at the name Mike diaper um, <laughs> Mike diaper I believe won that one no no he was eliminated early. Um, oh really? Yeah, and I, I'll never forget your description of it. Um, you're like, it's like Mike yawn diaper mushroom cloud, and yep. <laughs> <laughs> which was such a perfect description of that name. But you were talking about uh, Alden Capital just absolutely obliterating the Denver Post, and the Denver Post still exists. But if you go to their homepage, like there, it's it's so clumsily curated because there's just not enough staff there. Yeah. Um, like, I'm like, why on the main page is there some fucking story about the Baltimore Orioles? Like, wh- who? F- yeah. What is this? Like, I, and I know it's all it's wire insu- shit. It's but- insulting, yeah, but because it's all done by AIs and algorithms yeah. and stuff. To me, like, that's the part of it that. So one of another success story, startup sort of thing, is the Colorado Sun, which oh, yeah, is totally. made up of a bunch of people. I think were Rocky Mountain News people. You're which right. Rocky Mountain News was just closed. Uh, that closed the year I got married, so that was 2009, and that was my. Uh, yeah. It was a two paper town, and that was my favorite one. So naturally, it closed. Yeah, yeah I had one of my first editors uh, at Wall Street Journal. One of the first guys I ever wrote for was a Rocky Mountain News guy. Who was? Remember, it? he used to he covered the Nugs. Uh, Adam Thompson. Okay, yeah, name and, sounds familiar. Yeah, it, maybe it was Denver Post, but I think it was Rocky Mountain News. And he, I remember, like <laughs> he would like impress me by like showing me all the Nuggets guys he had in his phone from when he was reporting. <laughs> Like he'd be like, yeah, I guess if I need to call Ruben Patterson, I can do that. Like, but uh, it's like that, check it out, Tr Dunn, and you go. Yeah, it's like whoa, well, like this cool. is, I better get my assignment in earlier. Wow, was that Robert are... Pack? Yeah, was, <laughs> honestly, like if anyone's gonna say, wow, was that Robert Pack? It's probably me. Even then, that was my brand before I. But like with the Sun is like made up of people from that, and they basically like they're making money. They were making money within a year. Mm-hmm. And th- what they do is way harder than what we do because it's it's politics reporting, you know, and yeah. it's like – but a lot of that is about, like, just identifying that people want to know what's going on around them. And, you know, Alden Capital doesn't care about that. No. Like, I and I don't understand exactly – I think there's a there's a principle to it. It's not, like, a good principle, but there is this – like, so their model is basically, like, you buy this thing – you cut costs and you make it worse and less expensive and hope that you can do that more quickly than people will unsubscribe. Mm. And that's where, and that gap between the two that like, if the subscriptions stay the same and the costs are cut by two thirds, then you're making more money. You're just not producing a good product. Or you can sell it. Right. You can sell it to some other sucker. Right. Theoretically. But if there's, if you make the paper bad enough that it has no credibility, then there's fewer people. And then also there's this other thing where, like, it depends upon there being someone that wants to own a newspaper. And again, you could make money if you own the Denver Post. You just need to start with, like, enough money to buy the Denver Post. And right. then you need enough money to pay a union newsroom and pay to get stuff printed and pay to make and pay to make the website work right. And, you know, if Alden doesn't care, if they can centralize all of that and they wind up with, like, stories about the fucking Orioles on the homepage or whatever, it's yeah. like... For them, it all kind of comes out in the wash. I just, I find that really grim. Growing up in New Jersey, you know, there's been, the Star-Ledger has been, which is the Newark paper, has been the biggest one in the state, has been on the ropes for decades. And I think it's generally doing okay now. The Bergen Record is owned by, which is the one that I read growing up, 
It's owned by one of those big newspaper groups and is bad, thin, weird, wire service <laughs> copy. Yeah. But if New Jersey is not, if New Jersey's politics are not being covered well by a dedicated core of like news reporters, then the state is going to turn into fucking Thunderdome. <laughs> like it is like just its resting state is so deeply corrupt that if you're not shining a light on it, they will just, you will, there's no bottom to how bad it could get. Right. And I, you know, I imagine Colorado's a little more chill with that, but every state's politics are like that. If you're not keeping an eye on things, they're going to act like they're not being watched. Yeah. No, that I think that's a great point. Um, there, there's a there's a strain of politician that just hates the accountability that the media, yep. at, at worst, attempts to provide. Like they even right. they they even are uh, horrified by the attempt to do that. Uh, yeah, like offended by it. Like the right. idea of that sort of. The, we were talking about this on the on the distraction a little bit this week that this has become like a whole strain in politics. Like that the Arrested Development gag, which is like funnily enough delivered by Scott Bayo, who is now like. <laughs> A pretty ardent Trump guy, but that, like, why should you get in trouble for a crime that someone noticed? <laughs> and that's, like, I think there's really, like, yeah, that's, totally. like, not a gag to many millions of people. Yeah. Uh, 100%. All right. Well, I'll tell you what. I've kept you long enough. This uh, this has been an absolute pleasure because I— It was fun, man. Thank you for having me. <laughs> Thank you for sticking with me through the vacation period where I was more or less incommunicado. Ain't no thing. Um, don't even worry about it. But— this is the time on the show when we do plugs. Where can people find you? Find Defector. Whatever you want to plug, it's all yours. Sure. Uh, Defector.com is the website. Uh, you can ask John how good it is. It would be weird if I said it. It's fucking um, amazing, and you should subscribe. Hey, wow. I love it. Well done. We didn't even rehearse that. No. Uh, thank you, you. We don't um, need to because I, I genuinely <laughs> adore it, and it's something I look forward to reading every single day. I appreciate it, man. Thank you. I, the podcast I do there is with Drew McGarry. That's called The Distraction. I do a podcast with Jeb Lund about Hallmark movies called uh, This is Christmas Town. You, you can listen to that or not. Uh, it's really one of those things where you'll probably know whether you want to based on the fact that I said it's about Hallmark movies. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I'm on Twitter at, at David underscore J underscore Roth. But uh, thanks for having me, man. I appreciate it. 100%. You can find links to all of that in the companion blog piece. That is on johnofalltrades.us. Also in the show notes. So that is on uh, what are we doing here? Uh, iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Pandora, wherever you get your pods, I'm probably wherever there. Wherever you get your podcasts. You know that it. Phrase. David, uh, this was a pleasure. Keep up the great work, and I wish you nothing but continued success. Thank you, man. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. And that'll do it for episode 356 of the John of All Trades podcast with David Roth from Defector.com. What a great guy. What a fun chat. Be sure to check out Defector. Get a subscription. I get so much value out of it. If you love good writing, if you love good vibes, place for you. The John of All Trades podcast is a production of Deft Communications. Check out Deft on the web, D-E-F-T-C-O-M.us. I do all manner of traditional PR, and I can also produce a podcast for you. I have now eight, count them, eight podcasts that I either produce and one brand new one I'm debuting this Friday. Happy Friday. So whatever you need, hit me up. The email is john, J-O-N, at deftcom, D-E-F-T-C-O-M dot U-S. Our sponsor is 4Degrees, the number 4, D-E-G-R-E dot E-S. Anything you're doing online, 4Degrees can help you do it better, whether it's email marketing campaigns, social media marketing, online advertising, or any other kind of outreach you're doing in the web sphere, 4Degrees has you covered. The number 4, D-E-G-R-E dot E-S. I'm on social, 
The handle is J-O-A-T-Pod, Facebook, Twitter, Snapchat, Pinterest, and Instagram. Episode previews go up on Mondays or Tuesdays. New episodes drop on Wednesdays. Podcatchers everywhere. iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, wherever you get your pods. Leave us a rating. Leave us a review. Hit that subscribe button. Brand new episodes come directly to you. I'm out of here this week. We've got a returning guest next week. Very, very excited about that. The content train is rolling, baby. Get on. I am so excited. Going to be a good fall. Until I hear you again, say goodnight, Gracie. That's good, Johnny.